Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Taking you back to the golden era of Formula One. Mavericks. Free spirits. Drivers dicing with danger and even death. Welcome to Formula Once Upon a Time. The biggest events and incidents from the history of Formula One. The behind-the-scenes stories that could not be told until now. Here's Norman Howell and Roberto Bocafogli. Hello and welcome to our podcast. This time we'll be talking about Monaco and we will be talking to Damon Hill. I looked in my mirrors and I couldn't believe it. I, I nearly jumped out of my car with excitement. <laughs> I couldn't. Sorry. I'm so sorry, you know, but it's like it's the it's the best thing you want to see is Michael Schumacher is out of the race, <laughs> you know, in a wet race in Monaco. Jean Alesi. And you see the face of someone who is looking at you, you know, like if he's looking in your eyes. And that's very, <laughs> and that, that is very strange because sometimes when you come back and you say, I, how you can see me? And say, look, you were exactly at the, <laughs> at the place I have to, to, to look for the, the breaking point or the, the apex, you know, and uh, that was uh, very funny. Joe Ramirez. Eventually I heard Ayrton on the back said, yes, give me the phone. He was still crying then. I must be the biggest idiot in the world. I don't know what happened. I must have touched the inside cup, and then the car just jumped on the other side. I lost the steering wheel from my hands. And of course, my very good friend and co-host, Roberto Boccafogli. Hi, Norman. Hi, everybody. Roberto, this is the first time that uh, this Monaco Grand Prix has been cancelled in an awful long time. Yeah, it is from the mid-50s that Monaco wasn't missed by the Formula One World Championship. It's a very strange feeling, I say. I mean, this year has been without Monaco. I don't remember anyone more in my in all my professional life. Monaco is Monaco. Monaco is normally the start of summer. Monaco is the gambling of Formula One. It's not only a question of kissing or not the barriers. It's really... The concept of the driver driving in a very special place, a place where the single mistake can stop you absolutely. You don't have any time or place to recover. But also the magic of Monaco is very, very much interfering with the driver's psyche. 
That's right. And, um, and if we're talking about uh, a driver's psyche, there, there's one man who was, uh, who was the master of Monaco, and that was Ayrton Senna. Six wins. And in this podcast, we'll also examine his, uh, well, potential seventh win, and we will look into the extraordinary uh, shenanigans that happened. But there was another driver who, before Senna, was really considered the master of Monaco, and he was a British driver, Roberto. That was Graham Hill, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's sure. Graham Hill won Monaco five times. He was easily considered the king of Monaco because he was really using Monaco also to confirm his personality, a very special personality, because Graham Hill himself, he looked like a king in Formula One, not only because he was winning or not winning, but his character was so heavy, so big, so present. And yes, Monaco was his natural home. And so... When Ayrton Senna started winning in Monaco in the 80s, because Monaco was won the first time by Ayrton in 87 and the last time in 1993, six wins in seven years. That, yes, could have been seven if he was not making a silly mistake in the end of the 1988 uh, race where he was dominating. Then the strike would have been seven wins in a row. Unbelievable. And yes, Senna was uh, really even more the king in Monaco because uh, even today people are still considering Monaco as a normal logical partnership with Senna and Senna a logical partnership with Monaco. That's right, Roberto. And uh, what, a, what an extraordinary man. And we'll be hearing more about him uh, a little later on from some drivers and some other Formula One insiders. But I wanted to focus uh, in the early part of this podcast on, on the Hill family. Graham Hill, of course, which you beautifully described as the King of Monaco. And his son, of course, Damon, who had a chance to um, win in Monaco and then take the family tally to six, which at the time would have been um, equaling Ayrton Senna. Now, you caught up with Damon, didn't you? Yes, I did. And uh, what you say is totally true. Damon was very much keen to win in Monaco because with a six win, his family was at least, uh, would have been at least uh, at the same level of Senna. And this is also showed by the fact that already when he was debuting in Monaco with a Formula One car and he was quite young, not with a great team immediately because he started with the Brabham and when he came to the Williams team, he was still a very young driver. But immediately Monaco was very special to him. And in fact, I started with Damon just asking him, please tell us what the feeling was when you first raced in Monaco. Well, of course, it's always a special feeling because there's a mixture of excitement and also intimidation about Monaco because you know that it has the capacity to bite when you least expect it. It's an exciting place to drive and it's a challenge. And I think that it's a mark of concentration above anything else. It's a challenge to a driver's concentration. And going back over the years, if you go back to the early days, the race went on for many hours, three hours sometimes, and the dehydration would set in, tiredness, fatigue. And I think the ones with a lot of stamina, which I'd have to say my dad, who had incredible stamina and incredible powers of concentration, I think they prevailed because they were able to keep up their concentration for long enough. Damon, can I ask you if your dad said, I mean, you were very young those times because uh, your dad won uh, 63, 64, 65, and then 68 and 69 in Monte Carlo. You were a kid. But uh, do you remember he said something very special about Monte Carlo or maybe even explaining why he was so fast there? 
there's a couple of times that he spoke about it, but not directly to me. I think that most of my knowledge of driving at all has, has come sort of secondhand. I've heard, you know, I was either there when my dad was telling someone or, or I read about it later. So he never actually sat me down and said, this is what you do. But just listening and studying my dad as a, as a subject, you know, you, he, I, you had to pick up various things. And um, he seemed to be very keen on gear ratios for some reason with Monaco. And I think that's probably because there's so many gear changes in those days. They, they manually change gear. And the more times you change gear, the more wear and tear you have on the gearbox and also on the, on the engine. So I think he spent a lot of time studying how to change gear less. You know, if you had one gear change less per lap, that's 70 less gear changes or whatever, 80 gear changes less. Um, and that's uh, less stress on things. So I think he talked a lot about rhythm as well. So he knew that it's important to find your own pace and settle in. And uh, that's where I think Monaco is it's mesmerizing to go around this track. Visually, you're assaulted by changing perspective second by second because if you say, for example, going into the top of the hill as you enter into the casino, you can't see the exit at all. All you see is a changing barrier, which it just goes round and round and round. It keeps on getting deeper and deeper into the corner. And you, you're having to kind of imagine your way around this circuit. There's an extraordinary thing that happens when, they, when we do the installation lap. So we arrive on the Thursday, it is, and we do one lap just to check that everything's plumbed in and there's no leaks or anything. Literally, you go out of the pits, you drive around slowly, you get back, and it seems like it's taken you about 10 seconds. And yet, by the time you get to the end of qualifying, or certainly the end of the race, a lap feels like it takes about three minutes. So your brain is adapting to the environment, and it's, it has a kind of mesmerizing effect. And I, I think this is where my dad loved Monaco, and I think it's where it appealed to someone like Ayrton Senna and the great drivers like Jackie Stewart and, and Alan Prost. You know, they like to get into this concentration zone. And um, concentration is, a, is one of the rewarding facets of driving in competition because it's, it's almost like a Zen thing. Damon, you, you talked about focus and concentration, and uh, obviously, and, uh, and Monica being so special about that. I just wanted to take you back to um, your 1995 poll when you had Michael Schumacher alongside you. And of course, in 1996, when he was on pole and you were, you were still on the front row, obviously. Can you talk me through what it feels like to be on pole in Monaco or on the front row with Sandevote, you know, uh, as the, the place you have to get to first? And, of um, course, in 96, you had the rain, didn't you? Yeah, 96, it, it bucketed down just before the start of the race. But on 95, it was dry, I believe. But... Yeah, you asked the question about what it's like sitting on pole position. Well, it's a damn sight. It's better sitting on pole position than sitting on <laughs> third or fourth <laughs> or fifth. And certainly, I mean, the only other better place is to be last. Then at least you can see what's going to happen. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, it's a very narrow bottleneck corner. And so you're very mindful of the fact that if anybody tries to get alongside, it's almost certainly going to be an accident. Mm. You know, you, it's very difficult. One of the most exciting things I think you see on television with Formula One is is the first corner at, uh, at the Monaco Grand Prix. It's kind of a shame they've taken the barrier away on the inside, but because people can nip to the escape road now, whereas before they would kind of muscle their way through. But um, yeah, very satisfying to be on pole position, and um, but it still means you have to make a very good start and just not overcook it going into the first corner. I just trying to also, if I may, get inside your head a little bit. What's it like? 
to sit there, particularly in Monaco, where, as you said, is a very narrow bottleneck. You got someone alongside you. You know, I, I remember even from Linford Christie in, in a hundred meters dash, where they sort of sort of look at each other a little bit and try and psych each other out. It, does that go on? I think that it's not quite like running. I mean, we do have a little bit of an advantage. They don't put us side by side, so I've got a nose ahead on the grid anyway. But yes, in your mind, you are you know that Michael Schumacher is on your left. Um, I think I'm correct in saying it's on the left, and um, and as long as you make a good start, then it's a very slim chance that he'll he'll be alongside you. But you know, having a rival uh, alongside you is it's a perpetual state of challenge and threat uh, throughout the season. So it's kind of you get used to that. And um, I don't think that competitors necessarily think what will other people think of what I'm doing. They they just are so involved in what they're doing that in a way nothing else matters. And so you 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 have this singular mindset and it's pretty much like looking down a tunnel mentally as well as actually you know you literally are looking in the distance and 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 at the same time being incredibly present and alert and open to any influence at all whatsoever and and also able to edit out all the distractions and um, things will happen around you and, you and you just go that is irrelevant and that doesn't matter and you kind of put it to one side although it gets logged somewhere so, um, yeah, it's um, being, I mean, you know, we do it because we love it and you feel very alive when you're doing it. The amount of mental processing you've, you've just described, I mean, how, how exhausting. Are there moments in the race, especially in Monaco, where you, you really can't make a mistake? Are there moments when you just, you know, you just want to take a breath? I mean, okay, mentally, apart from physically? Certainly, my the last race victory, um, my truly relieved when we got to the end of that race. That was in Spa in '98, um, and I was struggling with the effort required. It was um, a very wet race, and they had a crash at the start. If, I don't know if you remember, and then they were delayed for an hour. So I stayed in the car for an hour. So I was actually was in the car for about four hours by the time you added it up, and I was absolutely drained mentally at the end of that one. Yes, you know, um, you have to watch yourself that you don't. Um, if I use the, the image of a jockey using his crop on the horse's backside, you know, you're tending to do that a little bit. If you find yourself flagging, you kind of give yourself a bit of a, a thwack and go right back to the job and focus. And um, you do have to kind of spur yourself on sometimes. Damon, can I ask you a very particular thing? On those times, I mean, between 87 and 93, when Ayrton won his last Monte Carlo event, we as media, I mean, and maybe also the, the public, maybe also the fans and so on, we did feel that Ayrton had maybe something special that made him so quick in Monte Carlo. Can I ask you if you if your drivers also felt something like that? Well, there must be some common experience that drivers have, but it, it varies. In talking to drivers, some people think that Ayrton's kind of mystical experiences were somehow invented or maybe over-exaggerated. And yet some other drivers you speak to kind of can relate to that, that level of concentration. And I think if you listen to competitors who have experienced great highs, they often refer to this, this state of being where they feel completely at ease and almost able, able to do anything. They feel they're invincible and that is a, a high state of concentration. And I think that Ayrton kept pushing himself. He was someone who was never content with himself, and he never never seemed to 
be satisfied with a result or a level of competitiveness. He wanted to go further. And you hear that in his quotes. He actually says it himself. He's always wanting to find out more, go deeper into this experience of, of finding out where the limits are. And the question really is, why would you want to do that to yourself? I mean, first of all, he was exposing himself to more risk than anybody. And secondly, he was uh, quite often much quicker than anyone anyway. So, you know, when you look at some other drivers like Fangio or Prost or even Jackie Stewart, they talk about winning at the slowest possible speed. The objective is to win the race. It's not necessarily to put yourself in jeopardy. And so someone like Ayrton, I think, was driven in a way that a lot of other drivers just weren't. So I think he is an exception. Damon, going again to that uh, 96 start in Monte Carlo, you were second on the first row, then you got the lead immediately. And then after the uphill, the casino, the downhill, after the lows, uh, hairpin, Mikel was crashing badly at the first uh, Portier corner. Can I ask you if uh, you felt it, if you saw him in the mirrors, or or when you had the proper feeling that he had disappeared from your back? No, I I saw him, Roberto. I looked in my mirrors and I couldn't believe it. I nearly jumped out of my car with excitement. (laughs) I couldn't. (laughs) I'm so sorry, you know, but it's like, it's the, it's the best thing you want to see is Michael Schumacher is out of the race, (laughs) you know, in a wet race in Monaco, you know, if you can get rid of him, then you've got, you know, you're on for a good, uh, a good chance. And so, yeah, I mean, I was very, um, it was surprising. It's not like him. Um, so, but, uh, I did manage to get a quick view and then I, uh, I clearly realized that I'd had, a, I got a massive lead off that cause they couldn't get past him. And I was, so it was, it was all, it was all perfect. And, you know, but, um, we know the way the story ends, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. For, because of a technical trouble, not your fault. Ah, uh, yeah. I'm sad to say it was a, um, it was, a not properly fixed sump plug or something like that oil plug or something in the Uh, engine so all the oil came out the engine and then blew up as it came out the tunnel i clearly remember that one day you said that having a winning monte carlo for yourself would have been adding to six total wins for the hill family and this would have been a great pleasure for you was it just something said to the media or it was really a proper uh, satisfaction for you if you had got it oh well it would have been a satisfaction to have won it just to be have it on your own cv i mean yeah definitely it would add to the hill tally i joke with um with uh with jackie stewart that he's you know he's got three world titles and i say yeah but the hills have got three titles as well but um you know <laughs> uh, um yeah and we've got more grand prix victories too but, um, you know, it doesn't really work like that. You can't kind of send in more uh, reinforcements. Uh, but uh, so, it, you know, it is compared individually one against the other. But I had the opportunity of congratulating when I came second to Ayrton when he won in 94-3. And he'd equaled my dad's uh, total. Um, so I um, was it he beat it. I don't know if he beat it, actually. I think it might be he beat it, whatever. I was in the press conference and I was able to say I just wanted to pass on, you know, congratulations i'm sure he'd be delighted uh, to have seen someone like yourself equal or beat his um his total and he was very very touched by that which is which is a nice thing to pass on formula one you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection 
Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Once upon a time. Well, Roberto, that was really interesting, fascinating from Damon. I love the image of him wanting to leap out of the car as soon as he saw Michael having his crash. Um, it's a little insight on how, how these guys think. Next, we go to Jean Alesi, another legend of Monaco and Formula One, a real character. And uh, Roberto, you tell us something about Jean. You caught up with him, didn't you? Yeah, Jean was an incredible character in Formula One. When he came to Formula One, it was um, July 89. He came nearly by a mistake because he got the place of Michele Alboreto in Tyrrell. And that was because Michele couldn't stay because the Tyrrell team had changed its sponsor. And so Michele, who was connected to Marlboro, had to leave. Tyrrell found themselves without a driver just for the French Grand Prix, mid-July. And they simply chose Jean Alesi, who was a... Nice, young, uh, 25 year old, years old guy who was going very, very, very good with the Formula 2 at that time. It was called Formula 3000 that year. And he was winning and winning very convincingly. He simply came to France. He had his debut and he finished with the fourth place overall in his very first Grand Prix, which was incredible. So the next year, 1990, when he had his debut in Monte Carlo, he was already quite a star because people already recognized him as a very, very fast driver and a very healthy driver because Alessio was that. It was, uh, yes, he was very quick. He was a master in some conditions, but uh, he was hard, 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 and then driving and then being professional and so on. So people already loved him and he felt it. So when he was uh, having his debut in Monte Carlo, he was simply staring at Senna because he thought that Senna was the champion, was the master in Formula One and especially in Monaco. And he simply tried to go very close to him. And in fact, in his first race, 1990, with the Tyrrell, which was very promising and very good, but it was not a top, top car, he was simply second in the race, just one single second behind Senna winning. It was a miracle. Well, uh, you you say a lot about uh, Monte Carlo. It's true. Uh, Monte Carlo was uh, Ayrton Senna. Uh, he had a special way to uh, to drive on, on these streets. And um, 
I've been uh, extremely lucky at the time to have a top car, very competitive and uh, very, I would say, uh, easy to drive on the, on the street circuit because we all knew at the time Monte Carlo was just uh, the appointment of Ayrton Senna. Nobody had a chance, but uh, I've, uh, I have twice the fastest lap in, uh, in Monaco during the race. So that was also a kind of gift I had uh, from the, uh, the, the track because um, being uh, quick on this uh, street was not something uh, easy. But I have to say, uh, I feel uh, not like Ayrton, but uh, I feel always very comfortable in the streets because maybe my, my way to drive was not made for Formula One, but for rally. And I was trying to make the same, the same, uh, <laughs> the same approach at Ayrton. I was uh, working a lot with the throttle and um, trying to make the car a little bit sliding before to go into the corner. And uh, when you get it uh, right, it was very efficient. Jean, can you say that Monte Carlo gave a particular, a special push to some drivers? And I also mean yourself, of course. You know, it is an appointment, Monte Carlo, for all the drivers. You cannot avoid Monaco. If you are not competitive there, if you not show one time during your career to have capability to, to win this Grand Prix, that means you are just a part of the drivers who, who are, uh, let's say, they are just numbers of uh, ex-Formula 1 driver. But uh, to uh, be able for a lot of years to say in the mind of the, the fan, you must show one time in your life you are the man of Monaco. Jean, when you say the man of Monaco, is, it's, it's really interesting. What is special when you're driving in Monaco? Is it, is it focus? Is it ability? Is it fear that you know that if you get it wrong, you'll, you can't make a mistake? You know, what is it that is so unusual? What's the special ingredient? So what is uh, very special from the, the level I can say? It's uh, the um, evolution of the grip of the track, it's all the time. And uh, it will uh, never change from uh, the early time, from uh, the modern time, the evolution of the, the grip. Every single lap is changing, you know? So you must drive not as a computer to say, okay, I know uh, on this corner, I have to break at uh, 100 meters, this one 50 meters. No, it's not like that. You have to adapt your uh, style and your uh, your skill with what the circuit gave you. When you have the grip available, you have to use it. So that is the first special aspect of uh, Monaco. The second one is not a racing circuit. It is a street circuit. So the, the cars are not built to be stressed like they are on this uphill, downhill, uh, kinked, uh, king corner like uh, the last corner Anthony Nogues, uh, these corners are very strange and you will never get a corner like that or the, the championship. And you need to kiss sometimes the, the barrier, but just a smart kiss. <laughs> <laughs> Jean, can I ask you if you were at the times considering that uh, on the track there was a, a special, a very special point where to uh, achieve a great time, and if there was a very specially dangerous place? Well, for sure, uh, in my time, because now, uh, fortunately, it's a little bit uh, different and uh, they improve it. But the swimming pool, the S's, 
the, the real corner to to very very close to the walls because at the time we we were, we didn't have uh, the uh, the curves but it was wall and because you are sitting very low you can't see the exit so this corner was fast and uh, very uh, very nice and i will say the the long casino uh, the long left corner on the top that also it's uh, it is a, a corner because you you just go flat out into the corner and then you have to slow down slow down and then going down to uh, mirabeau fantastic Another particular um, things in um, in Monaco was uh, the people walking around. You know, many many times you have to look to uh, apex or look to uh, the barrier to be uh, able to be fast, and you see the face of someone who is looking at you. You know, like if he's looking in your eyes, and that's very, <laughs> and that that is very strange because sometimes when you come back and they, basically it's uh, photographers or special uh, uh, sponsor who have uh, the ability to go behind the, the, the barriers. And and then uh, if you cross them, you say, oh, I see you, you have been uh, the whole session in uh, in uh, Mirabeau. And they say, I, how you can see me? And they say, look, you were exactly <laughs> at, the, at the place I have to look for the, the, the breaking point or the, the apex, you know, and uh, that was uh, very funny. And this amazes mere mortals like us who can't do what you can do, Jean. The fact that you have this capacity to absorb so much information, you know, you're, you're driving the car, your, your feet, your hands, your brain, your body, and you somehow have space in your mind to record a face in the crowd. I mean, are you guys special anyway, especially for Monaco? What is it that, that makes it so? Do you stop time? No, no, no. You need to be very clicked. Uh, when I say click, is uh, the moment you are thinking of something a bit off what you are doing, uh, you go out of the car. <laughs> you know, you you have no chance to drive. Um, maybe like you have uh, the possibility to drive in uh, Paul Ricard or other track where if you make a small mistake, the track forgive you. Not in this place. So your eyes and your motivation plus the uh, concentration is so high you see everything formula once upon a time and that was jar lazy what a modest man what a lovely humble man he is and you know hell of a driver that he was but he respects like all great drivers, respected the greatness of Senna. Yes, and uh, let's not forget that we're not only talking of Senna, and Senna was, uh, I mean, a master himself, but we are talking of Senna in Monte Carlo, and they together made an incredible pair. Because uh, if Senna was Senna, and he was, uh, Senna in Monte Carlo was even, he was uh, after Senna himself, because Senna admitted himself that Monte Carlo meant something very special to him, and there he was capable, he was able to provide something extra, even for his standard, that was already extra if compared to other drivers. Indeed, Roberto, I agree. What a, what an extraordinary man Senna was. And, uh, and what a lovely glimpse we've had from Jean Alesi, who drove, of course, alongside him and, and behind him, as, as many drivers, of course, did. Next, we have a man who had a 40-year career in Formula One. Uh, not as a driver, of course, uh, but he took many roles in many teams. He, he finished his career as sporting director at McLaren at the time that Senna was there. 
But uh, Joe was uh, from Mexico. He came over with the Rodriguez brothers. He ended up at Ferrari where uh, nothing glamorous. He just he cleaned the garage and made the coffee to start off with. So Roberto, Joe joined Ferrari at a time when, uh, well, a very historic uh, and special time because, of course, Enzo Ferrari was still there. Yes, Norman, we were commenting earlier what about recognizing the greatness of people in Formula One. And yes, I mean, Joramiris came from Mexico together with their Rodriguez brothers, as you said. He was very young and he happened to come to Ferrari. Which Ferrari? The Ferrari of Enzo Ferrari. Enzo Ferrari was standing alone in Formula One and Joe Ramirez was leaving that uh, atmosphere, was breathing that air. So he really started feeling how Formula One could be extremely special. In the next years, he met all of them. He met all of the big masters, Colin Chapman at uh, Lotus or Ron Dennis starting to build up McLaren. He saw everything from very close and then he was in McLaren for a long period of time until when, until when Senna came. And so Joe was immediately in big contact with Senna because he was so able to recognize immediately how great the man was. And in fact, it was a special relationship immediately starting between them two. Yes. And this special relationship uh, was very, very close. Quite, quite an extraordinary relationship. And we want to look at what happened at Monaco in 1988 and Joe's unique insight to that extraordinary race when uh, Senna crashed his car and then disappeared. We asked Joe if he thought that Senna had a, a special feel for Monaco. Absolutely. I think uh, I've always fascinated to me driving through the streets. Uh, I think everyone in our youth, people that like this sport, used to terrorize our neighbors by going around the corners on your father's car at the time, you know. And I think for Ayrton it was probably the same. He loves driving through the streets because this sort of tracks, they need a, a special precision. And if anything, Ayrton have was precision on everything he did on his life. He was so methodic. And the fact that the, he could uh, use every single centimeter of the road in Monaco, and it was amazing how quick he was there, how much he had something very, very special. I remember saying after the qualifying in 88, when he was one and a half seconds quicker than Prost, he said that uh, he was seemed to be going quicker and quicker all the time, like he the car was driving by himself, that he like if he was under a tunnel and he then decided to stop because he was kind of getting almost out of his hand, the way that he was so quick going. And the way he explained it to me, I, I thought at the time, I thought, oh, what a lot of rubbish. I mean, the, the only thing is that to me, he was the greatest driver ever to sit on the racing cars. And he could do that. And Monaco was absolutely mesmerizing. Getting to Monaco and taking over a second of Alain Prost, which he, Alain Prost at the time, he was the number one in the business. And places like Monaco and like Spa used to be the norm, the people that set the way. And in both places, one and over a second in Monaco, 
and uh, half a second in spa he took from Prost. Unbelievable. But like Prost very much recognized that the way that uh, Ayrton used to keep the reps up under cornering, he tried to do it, but he couldn't. He could not do it. For more that he tried, he just couldn't do it. So he said, if he was able to extract that much out of the car on a qualifying lap, he deserved those eight meters in front. And yeah, the pole positions, I don't think it would ever be anybody as quick as Ayrton on a pole position. Uh, I was very, no, upset, but sad when uh, first Michael Schumacher beat the number of pros of Senna, and then, of course, it'd been others after him. Because uh, I really thought maybe that's a record that Ayrton should keep forever. Even uh, Michael at the time, when people said, well done, uh, Michael, you beat Ayrton Senna record. And said, well, to me, that's not a record at all. Everybody knows that if Ayrton was alive, he would have had more position than what I have now. But because he's not uh, around with us to defend himself. So... I said to, to Michael after he said that, I thank him because I, that's what I, I felt as well, that uh, that record belonged to him. Joe, uh, I remember that you are quite involved in that 1988 Monte Carlo for Ayrton because uh, after he getting pole by 1.4 seconds over Prost by kissing nearly every barrier in the circuit during the qualifying lap. He was also dominating the race by more than 40-45 seconds over Prost on equal cars. And it was an incredible, incredible, stunning result. But then we can all remember that uh, Ayrton made uh, a great uh, mistake entering the last corner before the tunnel. He had to retire. He had to hide on his own flat that was uh, incidentally being exactly at the external side of that corner, the second portier corner. And nobody from McLaren was able to touch him, to reach him, to phone him, because he refused to answer the phone, to answer the doorbell. But uh, you were able late in the evening. Can you tell us what happened exactly? Uh, I was... Um an incredible race. I mean, the reason why Prost was so far behind is because he was uh, he was in second in the at the start, but he was nipped by um, Gerhard Berger, so he was third going into the first corner, and he stayed there till I think fifty six laps or no, I can't remember how many laps by then. But uh, um, by then he was. 50 or 54 seconds behind Ayrton by, by the time the, he eventually got over Gerhard and he was second. Then, of course, uh, uh, Ayrton was looking at the times that we were giving him and, he, so, and then lap, lap record after lap record from Prost and he was taking four, five seconds at the time and Ayrton got worried and he started putting lap records himself and another lap record. And, uh, and Ron shouting at him on the phone, he's never going to catch you, never going to catch you, slow down, slow down, concentrate, he's never going to catch you, he's too far behind. He had no ears, he was just, uh, he, that obsession he had about Prost, and he wanted to beat him, when he saw he was behind, he was unbelievably. Anyway, came that uh, 
I don't know, it was about eight, seven or eight laps before the end. He touched the inside uh, barriers at La Portiere, and then he went to the other side of the barrier, and that was it. His race was finished. And he got off the car. We all have seen those uh, videos when he got out of the car, really upset, throwing his airplugs and uh, gloves and everything. And, and conveniently, he was very close to his flat in Princess Great Boulevard. So he went to the to his flat and he stayed there. And so after the race, we tried to call him, trying to call him, and he, the phone didn't answer the phone. Of course, we didn't have any mobile phones then. And uh, we, I was keep trying every 20, 30 minutes. It wasn't until about nine o'clock that finally uh, I found Isabel, I think it was the name of uh, the lady that looked after his flat there and he made the food. And eventually the phone answered and it was Isabel. Isabel, I want to speak to Ayrton. Oh, no, no, Senor Ayrton is not, uh, not here. Yes, yes, he must be there. I know he must be there. Please tell him, it's Joe. You know me. I was there with you. No, Senor Ayrton is not here. Eventually, I heard Ayrton on the back, said, yes, give me the phone. So he got the phone and he said, he was still crying then. He said, I must be the biggest idiot in the world. I don't know what happened. I must have touched the inside curb and then the car just jumped on the other side. I lost the steering wheel from my hands and he was kind of telling me what, what it did happen. And, uh, but the, the, the truth of the matter is that he just, for some trying to go quicker and quicker every lap, whether if he was tired or lost concentration. Anyway, it was one of the biggest mistakes, uh, if not the biggest, of Ayrton in his career. But... He was so uh, perfectionist and he didn't tolerate the uh, mistakes from the team and he tolerated his even less. So by the time you get to see him, uh, nobody could tell him off, not even Ron. You know, he knew, we knew how much he had already punished himself by the mistake. Formula Once Upon a Time. This is a very true Joe Ramirez Norman. I mean, let's not forget that Joe was the secret keeper of Senna. It was not easy to deal with Senna. Even Ron Dennis in McLaren, as you very well know, had some very difficult moments with the driver. But uh, Joe was very, very close to him. He was never dangerous to the driver. He was uh, listening more than talking. And so Senna used to open his heart to Joe Ramirez. That's why Joe can really explain from the deep a lot of feelings of Senna in Monte Carlo and not only Monte Carlo. Thank you, Roberto. That was a really wonderful insight into, into, from Joe Ramirez into, into Senna's mind and soul, really, and from a man who, yes, was trusted. And that's it for this podcast. A big thanks to Damon Hill, to Jean Alesi, and to Joe Ramirez. Please like and subscribe so you get the next podcast. And until then, it's goodbye from me, Norman Hall. And a ciao from me, Roberto Boccafogli. And thanks for listening to Formula Once Upon a Time. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.